Okay, the only announcement that I know of for tonight that we need to uh, review is that we're going to have our church picnic in a couple of weeks on Saturday, the uh, 16th of April. Either just be, I think tax day though this year has been put off to the 18th to give everybody the weekend, but you get to spend your weekend having fun. So get it done by the 15th and have fun, celebrate afterwards. So that will be, there will be a sign-up sheet in the back, and we will also have um, a sign-up sheet for activities and several other things like the uh, last time. So uh, there were so many people who did things the last time and participated. It really was great. So um, we can be ready. Now, that's the weekend before Easter, so everybody can be, uh, be prepared. Before we begin... Uh, This evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that when we sin, it never jeopardizes our salvation, but it does break our fellowship with God. It does uh, stop our ongoing spiritual growth until we recover. And the recovery is simply to confess our sins to God the Father. If we confess our sins, Scripture says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship with God, ready to study the Word, ready to focus tonight, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening in order to study your word, that as we go through each day and we face many different uh, tests and trials and challenges and adversities, and we have many opportunities to trust you, opportunities to uh, give the gospel to others, opportunities just to be a witness by the way we live, Uh, at times it's important for us to to just stop and be refreshed by your word, to be strengthened by your word, to be equipped and trained by your word so that we might be more effective in our witness and more effective in our um, in the way we live our Christian life. Now, Father, as we continue our study this evening, we pray you would help us to understand the things we study and put them into the proper context, and that as we study, we can see what a marvelous work that you accomplished on the day of Pentecost as God the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Nothing happens in history that is purely circumstantial or just happens uh, out of pure chance or pure random behavior. We live in a universe that is governed by God. God oversees. He either directly or indirectly through his permissive will allows things to take place. Now, a lot of folks have problems with a lot of things that take place. There are many horrible things that happen in history, and so... People often want to blame God for those things because they don't really have a good grasp on how the Bible presents uh, God's oversight of history. God gives people freedom of will, freedom to choose, and if you are going to give people freedom, then they have to have as much freedom to fail as the freedom to succeed. And to the degree that you limit their freedom to fail or just stop, completely their freedom to fail, you will 
either diminish or cause their freedom to succeed to also uh, end. Uh, what happens to one happens to the other. Now, the reason I say that is because often when people do question God and his goodness, how can, he, how can a good God let these things happen? We have to question things such as the goodness of God. What do we really mean by that? Scripture doesn't ever really express it that way, although the goodness of God is a way to talk about God's righteousness and justice. What the Scripture focuses on is his character, that he is a righteous God and that he will always do that which is right, even though we may not know all of the things that are going on and we may not know all of the details, and often because we know just you know less than a uh, micro dot of information, and uh, we then extrapolate from that to make a judgment that God somehow has missed the boat and he's out of control or lost control. And God, because he's omniscient, has an infinite amount of information and data available to him, and he makes the right choice because he's righteous based on all the information, and most of which, 99.9, and you can just stretch that out uh, in uh, infinitely, uh, we, we lack 99.99999% of the information. And yet in our arrogance, we think we can, we can judge God. But God oversees history for a purpose. He's moving history towards an end. Ever since Adam sinned in the garden, God is working out a plan. He announced some things to Adam and Eve in the garden. He announced a plan of salvation that would come through the seed of the woman. We believe that plan came to fulfillment initially in terms of the payment of the sin penalty when Jesus Christ died on the cross through his virgin birth, he fulfilled all of the Old Testament uh, prophecies related to the Messiah. But that did not end history. That only shifted the phase of history. And <clears throat> 50 days after the crucifixion, a new stage in history began on the day of Pentecost that was... Uh, a transition period initially into a new age, but there were some things that were going on during this transition period that still had reference to God's plan for Israel. God, as a gracious God, was still offering the kingdom to Israel, and as we'll, we will see in the next several weeks as we continue our study in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Peter's message that he gives, it's still a gospel of the kingdom. Gospel of the kingdom, just as John gave a gospel of the kingdom and Jesus initially offered the kingdom to uh, Israel and his disciples went out preaching a gospel of repentance for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That gospel was still being offered. There's still a heavy Jewish emphasis in the first uh, seven or eight years of the church. The church is predominantly Jewish. It doesn't begin to uh, really reach out into the Gentile world for at least for approximately 12 to 14 years. There are Gentiles that come in uh, to the church, but it, it, it isn't until Paul's first missionary journey that you really see the expansion of Christianity into the Gentile world. So in those first, uh, that first decade to two decades after the cross, 
the focus is still Jewish and the offer is still there. But the more the offer is rejected, the more there is a shift through this transition stage. And part of this transition stage included something miraculous that happened on that initial day of Pentecost. And that's what we have been studying in Acts chapter 2, focusing on what took place when the disciples suddenly were um, received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and we saw that it was ex- unexpected, that as the disciples, they were, um, they were already saved, and that they immediately saw these manifestations of individual like flames of fire over the heads of each one of the uh, disciples, and then they began to speak in languages that they had neither uh, learned uh, nor acquired. And so uh, this was the miracle, and there was a reason for that miracle, and we covered that last time, went to the passages in First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, as well as uh, the quote there where uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses uh, uh, 12 to 14, focusing on why God uh, gave this gift of tongues, that it had a purpose, and that purpose was to indicate to Israel that God, again, would bring judgment upon Israel, just as he did in 722 B.C., just as he did in 586 B.C., that, again, he would bring judgment on Israel because they had they had disobeyed him. And that is um, that is the message that comes across uh, in the New Testament and in the book of Acts. And so the, the events that occurred there occurred on the um, in Jerusalem on the southern steps of the temple. And I pointed out last time the um, this picture of, of Jerusalem somewhere in probably down in this area. We're not sure there's different sites that are suggested for the upper room, but somewhere in this area was where the disciples had been staying in the upper room. And then they left there that morning after they heard the sound and the Spirit came upon them, and they walked to the temple because this was a feast day. It's the day of Pentecost, and there they would observe the day of Pentecost. And as they came, because the sound that had that had accompanied the coming of the Holy Spirit was a sound that wasn't limited to them. They weren't the only ones who heard it. People throughout Jerusalem heard it. And everybody's come outside to see what this sound was. It sounded like a tornado. I don't know if the, I don't think they have tornadoes in that area, but uh, it sounded like that, and it sounded like a freight train. They had probably heard neither, but this was a, so. This was a unique sound that brought everybody outside, and they're wondering what's happening. And then they see these uh, Galileans who are considered to be the uh, bottom feeders on the educational uh, chain in. Um, in, in Israel, not considered to be too bright, therefore not expected to be, um, not to be very good speakers of Hebrew or Aramaic, not to mention any other languages. They were lucky, the opinion was, if they were, if they could speak at all, much less be bilingual. And so the fact that they were speaking in these languages was quite unexpected. And so as they uh, came to the southern steps of the temple, uh, they began to speak in the language of these truly tens of thousands of men, mostly men, who had come to Jerusalem in order to 
uh, worshiped there on the day of Pentecost. And we're told in Acts 2, verses uh, 9 through 11, that these came from 15 different geographical areas. I find it interesting. I just want to point this out. Uh, not necessarily critical. Lord knows I've made my share of mistakes like this. But it's, it's, it's easy to think that when you read this list that and the fact that they're speaking in languages, that the list is a list of languages. It's not. It's a list of geographical areas. There's 15 geographical areas here, some of which are very close together. For example, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia are all, uh, are all provinces of what is now modern Turkey. That area of modern Turkey had been overrun by the Greeks from the time of Alexander the Great in approximately... Uh, 330 to 320 B.C., and so it had been dominated by Greek-speaking culture for 300 years, over 300 years. And my question is, and I haven't been able to find the answer to that, was there an ancient form of Cappadocian, an ancient form of Phrygian, or an ancient form of one of the, uh, of, uh, an ancient dialect of these different areas that was still spoken in the home, I know things like that still happen. For example, if you go to Ukraine, they're resurrecting Ukrainian because it was pretty much uh, prohibited during the time of the Soviet Empire. And people still in the rural villages and small towns still spoke Ukrainian, but everybody else spoke Russian. Well, now everybody is required to speak uh, Ukrainian in school, and all the classes are spoken in Ukrainian, and so the Ukrainian language is making a comeback. But that's been less than a century since the uh, Soviet Empire uh, overran uh, Ukraine, took over Ukraine in, in the uh, revolution of 1918. So in less than a century, in, in fact, only a little more than 70 years, that language didn't disappear. But we're talking about several centuries. So I don't know if all of these uh, areas that are mentioned here had their own uh, uh, discrete language or not. I, as I pointed out last time, uh, Dr. Gleason Archer, who has since been with the Lord, but was the head of the Old Testament Studies Department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity Seminary for many years and was quite a scholar and was uh, quite uh, a polyglot. And he did uh, a lot of study and research on these languages and said that actually only... Uh, 12 languages were represented by these 15 groups. As I looked at them, I wonder if not all of the people in, um, for example, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, if they would not all have spoken Greek and all understood Greek. Or, for example, those in, uh, in Cyrene, the visitors from Rome would have clearly spoken Latin. Cyrene was a Roman colony. Uh, Jews would have spoken Aramaic and Hebrew. The Parthians... Medes and Elamites were part of the that's all was all part of the Parthian Empire, where the uh, lingua franca was was Aramaic. So it could be as few as five or six languages, or maybe as many as twelve. But it's clearly a miracle that is taking place uh, here. So you have uh, fifteen geographical areas mentioned and sixteen sixteen languages, uh, perhaps more. And as I went through this last time. I wanted to um, take the time to look at this whole issue of the doctrine of tongues, this whole issue related to the doctrine of tongues. And I pointed out that 
tongues is a word that always refers to a legitimate human language. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, and somehow I think this is uh, unique to our in God's sense of humor, as I pointed out in the introduction, God oversees history, and I don't think that it was just happenstance that it was on uh, New Year's Eve of the beginning of the 20th century that a young 19-year-old woman who was uh, bent on being a missionary to China was praying that God would give her the gift of tongues and so that she could speak in Chinese and go to China as a missionary. She was going to a school, a small Bible school called the Bethel Bible Institute outside of Topeka, Kansas, and uh, it was being run by a man named uh, uh, Parham, William Parham. And he had been teaching this, this doctrine that if you really wanted to be spiritual, if you really wanted to be close to God, then you had to have some second work of the Holy Spirit after salvation. This was not a new doctrine with him. It had really come out of what had come to be called the holiness movement that uh, began to um, become quite popular in the United States and it spread throughout the world uh, from in the latter part of the uh, 19th century. If you were here for some of the historical papers given at the pastor's conference, there was reference to that. Uh, holiness theology had its roots in the theology of Methodism and Wesleyanism, but it was really motivated by a desire to get back to the enthusiasm and the excitement and the sense that God was really doing something uh, among his people uh, at the beginning of the uh, Wesleyan revival. The, the two Wesleys, John and his brother Charles, along with uh, Charles Whitfield and a couple of other men had been a part of what was they called the Holy Club at... Um, at Oxford, and they weren't. None of them were even believers at that time. None of them understood the gospel, but they were quite interested in reviving Christianity. They just felt like the Anglican Church had reached a level of cold, dead creedalism, which it had, and they wanted to breathe some new life into that. And so they were uh, very uh, introspective in trying to generate some sort of spirituality. Uh, it wasn't long before. Uh, John took up a position as a missionary to Georgia. Uh, Charles stayed there. Uh, uh, Whitfield went his own way. Eventually, the, all three uh, did become believers in Jesus Christ. Whitfield uh, left the movement as John's uh, star rose, and he became the leader of the, of the movement that only later came to be called Methodism. It was originally the Methodist Episcopal Church. It came out of the Anglican Church, and in the United States after 1776, Anglican was a bad word. So they called it um, Episcopal because of its form of government having, having bishops. And he emphasized something called perfectionism, which is often misrepresented. Uh, it, he didn't, they really didn't believe a, purpose, a person could be sinless, <laughs> But they did believe that a person could reach a higher plane of spirituality where they didn't really sin very much. Uh, Wesley, that, at least that was Wesley's view. Generations went by. Others did try to teach some sort of pure uh, sinlessness. But that wasn't Wesley's view. But by the 1840s, there was a woman Bible teacher. Seems like a lot of error comes out of women Bible teachers. Always note that. Note how many cults have been started by women. 
Um, that's not a sexist statement if you've never heard that. I, 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 somebody gave me, had it up here for a long time, maybe it's buried under here somewhere, a full-page ad that was taken out by an atheist association in a local paper, and they're running these ads all over the country, talking, and they're talking about how evangelical Christians uh, don't want women to be pastors, and so the accusation is that we're somehow paleolithic and antediluvian and retarded and sexist and misogynist and all of these other things. Actually, we're just trying to do what the Bible says, and the Bible says that women are not to teach or have authority over men. So when you have these different movements that occur uh, in over the course of history that are started by women, and sometimes it's started by women because the men are just spiritual dunderheads, and so in the vacuum of the lack of male leadership, uh, women uh, try to take over. And so Phoebe Palmer was one of those one of those women, and she was teaching these Bible studies in uh, in New York. And the Methodist movement had kind of fallen on hard times, and they, they their churches weren't growing. In fact, they were losing members. And they asked a question, and it's always a bad question to ask. You study enough things in history, you, you really should learn some things, and, and, and you watch what people ask, and some questions are just wrong, sort of like, have you stopped beating your wife? However, you, if you're not careful how you answer that, you're going to get in trouble one way or the other. And when we start asking questions like, what are we doing wrong? The church isn't growing. Well, maybe you're not doing anything wrong. Maybe there are other factors, like somebody followed Horace Greeley's advice, and when he said, go west, young man, go west, all your parishioners went west. The reason your church didn't grow doesn't have anything to do with your being a bad pastor teacher or people rejecting God or being uh, spiritual spiritual morons. It has to do with the fact that they're moving westward, they're applying the word, and they're uh, going out to find a new life for their families. And so churches, if you look at the statistics in the 1830s to 1860s, churches throughout the eastern seaboard were losing their numbers um, significantly from year to year. That, of course, that always hurts the pocketbook, among other things. And so people ask the wrong question. We must be doing something wrong. God must be punishing us. We must be carnal. We always get so self-absorbed. It's got to be my fault. Something bad's happened. It can't be that God's sovereign will. It can't have anything to do with other factors. It must be me. I must be carnal. And so she started down that path, and and they developed this sort of uh, view that, well, we lost that doctrine of perfectionism that Mr. Wesley taught us. So what we have to do is we have to get spiritual again and rededicate and re-rededicate and re-re-rededicate ourselves to God and, and because we obviously didn't get everything at the cross. We have to get another work of grace. God has to pour out His Spirit upon us in a fresh way so that we can experience all that God has for us. That's another bad thing. Whenever I hear some Christians say, Oh, I just want to experience all that God has for me. That tells me two things. You haven't been taught well, and you're going to get in trouble. Because God gave us everything we need for life and godliness, according to the Apostle Peter, at the instant we were saved. We're not going to get any more. We just have to figure out 
how to learn the Bible so that we can exploit what we've already been given. And uh, we ask those two questions, what have I done wrong? And I just want to get more of what, uh, what God has promised me. Well, you already have it. And so they asked that question. This was the root of what came to be not called holiness theology, and it also gave birth to movements like the Victorious Life Movement or the otherwise known as the Keswick Movement. We spent time talking about that at the conference. And these views of spirituality, now it's motivated by a good motive, but a good thing or a right thing done in the wrong way is still wrong. And so they eventually, this eventually led to trouble because they were trying to manipulate circumstances and people in order to move to a higher plane of spirituality. So what came out of the holiness movement was this idea that you get two shots of grace. You get one shot at, at the cross, and you get another shot when you get dedicated. And so you have to ha- go, have this second post-salvation experience in order to get that extra blessing from the Holy Spirit so you can live the Christian life. And if you don't get that, well, you're just going to be a failure, a miserable failure. And so that spurred what what has become known as American revivalism. All tent revivalism basically goes back to that. So they had the first work of grace at the cross. Second work of grace was after the cross. And the way you knew that you had the second work of grace was because theoretically at first they were saying you'd speak in tongues, but that second work of grace was called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they based that on some mistranslations in the Greek that where the same Greek phrase is used in all the passages as we've studied that some places it's translated baptism in the Spirit, other places baptism by the Spirit. But it's all the same Greek phrase, and the, the with or the in uh, prepositions in English didn't indicate two different baptisms. That's what they thought. Uh, <clears throat> it was just a bad translation. So they were basing their theology on a bad English translation, and so they had these two works of grace. By the end of the 19th century, they were saying that the second work of grace would be indicated by speaking in tongues, although nobody had spoken in tongues. And people like um, Parham and others were saying were teaching this And suddenly on New Year's Eve, uh, at the end of 1900, 1901, Agnes Osmond suddenly erupted in what sounded to everybody around her as Chinese. Oh, they were so excited that she was going to be a missionary to China. Well, it wasn't long before they realized that none of the Chinese on the other side of the railroad tracks in Topeka, Kansas, could understand a thing that she said. But that did not dissuade them. Well, it was a couple of years later, and Parham had to leave uh, Topeka, and he moved down to a to a little town on a ship channel down on a on a little inlet on the Trinity River in Texas called Houston, and he set up shop at the original. It's been used three or four times down through the years. The original Gulf Coast Bible College down in the Heights, and now this is like 1905, 1906 right in the middle of all those horrible Jim Crow laws. And so there was a one-eyed black preacher by the name of Willie J. Seymour who couldn't sit in those Bible classes, and he really wanted to learn the Bible, and he really couldn't even read, but he would sit at a desk out in the hall and listen to Parham's lectures. And after a couple of years, as he was uh, preaching in a church here in Houston, he got called out to a warehouse church 
in Los Angeles on a street named Azusa. And he went out there, and all of a sudden it was like like a, a spark hitting kindling. It just erupted into the flame of what became known as the Pentecostal movement, and it was given birth to in a black church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And people, the, the preparation for this had occurred for half a century in the holiness movements, and folks came from Scandinavia and from Britain and from Europe and all over to see this work of the Holy Spirit, and these folks were all speaking in tongues. And that gave birth to what became known as the Pentecostal movement. And uh, the Pentecostal movement was quite divisive. In those early years, they uh, eschewed all forms of materialism. Women didn't wear makeup. They wore beehive hairdos. They wore long dresses. They eschewed all things material. And uh, it was mostly marked by uh, rural working class people. Somewhere in the 50s and early 60s, uh, they discovered the prosperity gospel about the time they discovered that uh, people who weren't just the separatists of Pentecostals could also speak in tongues, and that sort of gave birth to what became known as the charismatic movement. And the charismatic movement was uh, quite, um, uh, quite divisive because they taught that you really weren't spiritual and you might not even be saved if you didn't speak in tongues. And someone would come into a church after the charismatic movement. See, in the Pentecostal movement, if you spoke in tongues, you just left and went to your own denomination. But with the birth of the charismatic movement in 1959, you stayed in your church, which really made things divisive. And so you started having charismatic Episcopals and charismatic Presbyterians and charismatic Baptists. And I remember about the time I went to seminary, there was a Hollywood Baptist church in Dallas that was, oh, it was extremely controversial because folks there started speaking in tongues. And students from Dallas Seminary would memorize the Lord's Prayer in Greek or the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew and go over there in their tongue-speaking service and quote uh, something from the Old or New Testament in the original language. And people came up with all manner of interpretations of those things. And it, it, I look back, and you, you, you think things were wild and woolly and hate asbury in the 19, late 60s and 70s. Just go over to the mirror reflection in the local church and the charismatic movement, and there were a lot of similarities, believe me. And a lot of the several leaders of the hippie movement in the in about 66, 67, and hate asbury got saved. They went to Chuck Smith's church at. Uh, down in Costa Mesa at Calvary Chapel and started the Jesus Movement, which was just, you know, baptized hippies, singing the same music, dressing the same way, speaking in tongues nobody could understand. What's interesting is a third development occurred in the 70s. This movement came to be called the third wave of the Holy Spirit. I always think that's interesting that, that, that now it's a wave that's coming. But what was interesting is they didn't associate um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues as necessarily the signs of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. In fact, you, um, they didn't really want to define any of these things. Some people would speak in tongues, some people not. They tried to have this appearance of being balanced. You know, we always think somebody's a little better, a little more mature, a little more spiritual if they're balanced. I know that God talked to Lucifer about balancing good and evil, right? Just see if anybody's paying attention. You can't really balance some things. You know, you're either right or you're wrong. So, but they were balancing things. And so um, about that time, I was working on my doctorate in American church history. 
And so I went out to one of the uh, conference, a conference on spiritual warfare at the uh, mother, mothership of the Vineyard Movement, and there were about five or 6,000 people there, and it was a real happening place. What, what really bothered me was that a lot of the people that things were happening to were had been classmates of mine a decade earlier at Dallas Seminary, and I was a little disappointed in a number of them. But we had a lot of different workshops, and I went to one workshop on the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I thought, well, I want to see what they say and see, see if I've ever been baptized by the Spirit, according to them. And this young man who later became uh, one of the Kansas City prophets, but that's another story, uh, was teaching this workshop, and he said, now, folks, terms like the baptism of the Holy Spirit are, are real controversial, so I, we don't even like using that term. Baptism means immersion. So I just asked people, have you ever been immersed by the Spirit? And then, wham, now you've got, see, you've been baptized by the Spirit. Wasn't so bad, was it? And I thought, isn't that deceptive? Just, I don't know, just a little bit. And and there were a lot of things like that going on in the what became known as the Vineyard or the John Wimber movement or the Signs and Wonders uh, Wonders movement. And it wasn't long before the emphasis went just completely away from the baptism of the Spirit in tongues. Not only there, but you also had the health and wealth or prosperity gospel movement. All of this, was, all these things were tied into the, what was the church growth movement, and it impacted people like. Uh, John Osteen, who was the father of uh, Joel at the um, at the old Lakewood Church when it wasn't quite so big, and it impacted a lot of what had been Pentecostal charismatic churches, but now they became independent or interdenominational churches. Remember back in the 60s, if somebody asked you where you went to church, if you were going to a Bible church, you'd say, I'm going to a non-denominational church. Now, if you say that, that's a code word for a charismatic church. What happened? Well, all uh, a whole group of these um, uh, charismatics suddenly got uh, got in trouble because they had bought into a a heresy. It had been called a heresy by the Assemblies of God and a couple of other Pentecostal denominations back in the late 40s, and they'd gotten caught up in this. That's the whole health and wealth, name it, claim it, word of faith, Jesus movement that dominates the Christian airwaves today. And 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 so rather than getting in trouble with their denominations, they all just left their denominations and started what they call non-denominational churches. So that's the rise of these modern non-denominational churches. And in a lot of cases, they're not even, even evangelical, but they're always categorized as evangelical by the somewhat ignorant uh, secular media that doesn't have a clue what anybody believes about anything. And so they're always mislabeled which is, again, another story. Now, the reason I'm going into all of that history and all of that background is because people always ask sooner or later, where does this come from and what is this all about? But because since we're studying the events on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and the gift of tongues, I thought I would bring that in because at the very core of the problem was this misunderstanding of spirituality. And there was this problem in Greek culture at that time. In pure Greek paganism, uh, you had the view that if you got ecstatic enough through various uh, means, in some cases, for example, in Dionysian or Bacchus worship, 
Dionysius or Bacchus was the god of wine. They would go up into the groves and uh, worship centers up on up on the hilltops, and they would get drunk, have orgies on into the night, and they would dance, and they would uh, get as excited as they could be and as drunk as they could in the hopes that the God would enter into them, and the language they used was the God would fill them and then speak through them. And you had the oracle at Delphi, uh, who was a high priestess who was uh, actually indwelt by a Pythian demon who would speak through her in this kind of ecstatic utterance. And so this was identified as spirituality. And this became a major issue in Corinth especially. It wasn't very far from the Oracle of Delphi. And uh, Corinth was a, had a little bit of everything going on in Corinth as a, as a port town. But there was this confusion that, that they could become close to God and God could speak through them uh, if they would have these kinds of experiences, so they were doing the, the, what's become a time-honored tradition among Christians is rather than sticking with the Bible, they try to blend paganism with the Bible, and they just got into all kinds of trouble. And it was this idea that somehow the, the spiritual gifts, and especially speaking in tongues or healing or miracles, that somehow this indicated that a person was closer to God, that they were more spiritually mature, something of that nature. And so this was refuted by the Apostle Paul in three chapters in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he deals with spiritual gifts, that they're all given to every to, to believers at the instant of salvation, and that they, they have nothing to do with the spiritual life of the individual, although as they mature, they will use their gifts more efficiently and more effectively uh, in their ministry into the local body. But this idea, as I pointed out last time, the idea of <clears throat> that, that tongues was somehow special, uh, so often we, we've got to counter this. And last time what I did in, in our study in Acts was I looked at the events on the day of Pentecost, the, the events in Samaria and uh, where Philip preached the gospel, and we saw that people believed, then they were baptized, water baptism. Then Peter and John uh, were asked to come down from Jerusalem. Then they prayed to receive the Holy Spirit, uh, who had not yet fallen on these who were believers and baptized. And only after Peter and John came, uh, did when they laid hands on them, did they receive the Holy Spirit, but they didn't speak in tongues in Samaria. Then the next incident that shows the, the Gentile Pentecost, that's the Samaritan Pentecost, uh, the next incident uh, we went over in, in Acts 10, Peter explained the gospel and who Jesus uh, is, and then while he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. Because while he was speaking, they're sitting there, and in the privacy of their own soul, they're believing in Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. And so they didn't have to wait for anything. The Holy Spirit fell on them as they believed, as they responded. And um, then they were baptized with water. Uh, and then, just instantly, without expecting it, they spoke in, the, in languages and exalted God. And there were just a few Jews present, those who came with, with Peter. Now, the event that I didn't get to last time was in Acts chapter 19. So you might want to turn with me uh, briefly to Acts chapter 19. And this is Paul in Ephesus. Paul in Ephesus. 
And in Ephesus, we read that uh, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. This is on Paul's, um, at the end of his second missionary journey. Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he just finds some Christians, there's some Jewish believers, in, but they're not really Christians yet, but they're, what we'll see is they're Old Testament saints, but they're identified as, as disciples, so they're reading the Old Testament, studying the Old Testament, and so he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. And they said, no, we, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. So this is some 20 years after Pentecost, and here you have these believers who, as it turns out, are disciples of John the Baptist and were baptized by John the Baptist with his baptism, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. So they represent a fourth group. You have Jews in the first group on the day of Pentecost. You have the Samaritans, the second group. You have Gentiles, the third group. And then this represents Old Testament believers who are in the diaspora. All four of them have their own Pentecost, as it were, their own beginning at the hands, that is the reception of the Holy Spirit, at the hands of an apostle to show the unity of the church. There's not going to be a Samaritan church and a Jerusalem church and a Gentile church. There's only going to be one church all under the authority of the apostles. So uh, when Paul found them, they were ig- completely ignorant of the Holy Spirit, they had, but they had been baptized into John's baptism, uh, which means they were clearly saved. They were Old Testament saints, uh, but they had never heard of uh, Jesus. So they heard about Jesus now, and they heard about his baptism, and they believed in Jesus as their Messiah and were then baptized by Paul. That's in verses uh, 5 and 6. When they heard this, that is what what Paul said in verse 4. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The implication there is Paul doesn't spell out all the steps, but the implication is they believed and then they were baptized. That's the normal order uh, that's understood that that happened. He, Luke doesn't have to become a very poor freshman writer in order to communicate the word and tell us every little detail. We understand that they believe that's why they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So this is when they speak in um, unlearned, unacquired languages uh, legitimate languages. Now, that's another thing that was important. For example, I mentioned in the so-called revival of tongues with Agnes Osmond, the belief in the early American tongues movement, the early Pentecostal movement, was that they would speak in languages, and for the, at least the first 10 or 15 years, they really believed they would be able to uh, get this gift of languages and go be missionaries. They, they, they believed that was a purpose for it, was so that they could go... Uh, be missionaries. Now, we learned last time that that was not the purpose of the gift of tongues was to give the gospel. That was the gift of evangelism. Tongues was a sign of judgment to Israel that uh, they had disobeyed God, and if they didn't repent, then uh, God would uh, bring judgment upon them, and they would hear Gentile languages on the Temple Mount in the land that God had given to Israel. Now, um, a lot of people have tried to 
legitimize these glossolalic utterances over the years, and there have been a number of studies done. Usually they've been initiated by those who are sympathetic to the Pentecostal movement. Back in the 70s, the major works that were written were, one was by William Samarin, uh, John Sherrill, I think, did another study. And since then, there have been other studies done, both by those sympathetic and those not sympathetic. And by that, I mean not, not even Christian, just sort of history of religion students at Princeton or Yale or Harvard, where they have gone to churches, re- made lots of recordings of people speaking in tongues, and then submitted these to, for linguistic analysis. And even if you don't know what, some, what something means, you can analyze the syllables and the structure and the intonation, and somebody who is an expert in linguistics can tell you whether this is a language or gibberish. And it's never been demonstrated that it's anything other than gibberish, the intonation, the syllables, the, um, the, the uh, cadence, uh, all represent the native language of the speaker. And just to mix, they've just mixed up the syllables. Now, so what we see is in these patterns in Acts, there's no set pattern. There's no pattern of getting saved and then a second work of grace marked by being baptized by the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. That pattern that was said to be the absolute pattern in the in the 19th century just really wasn't there. The other thing that I've observed in my study of the history is in the last 20 years, I don't know that anybody ever really talks about tongues anymore. They don't seem to be the issue that they were from the, in the first three quarters of the 20th century. I, I think that's for a couple of different reasons. One is I think they just can't prove it anymore. Number two is they've moved on to health and wealth and uh, prosperity gospel and some of these these other things, so that speaking in tongues just is considered rather passe now uh, and when compared to other extravagant claims that are made in terms of healing and raising the dead and things of that nature. So the key passage, though, to understand this is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and let me just uh, sort of walk us through what Paul says here, because this passage, there's so many different views. And unfortunately, we live in an era today when you can go on the Internet and you can type in a couple of search phrases and probably come up with 15 different views and interpretations of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And so the way to uh, do Bible study then is to pick the one that makes you the most comfortable, and that must be God's Word, right? No. So we, we have to learn how to critically think our way through these things. And, and, and trust me, it's not easy. Some of these things are difficult. We have to work with the original languages because in English there are translation errors that are misleading. And so we have to be, we have to be careful. And it took me years working through a lot of these things to, to really come to, which is typical for anybody who's growing in the Word, to come to understand all of the intricacies of this passage. It's a wonderful passage. In uh, the first seven verses, Paul talks about the the virtue of love. We went over that some on Sunday morning. But in verse 8, he says, love never fails, using the word pipto, it never falls. It, it's, it's, he's going to conclude in verse 13 by saying, uh, faith, hope, and love continue, but the greatest of these is love. So those two statements frame this discussion. Love never fails. Love is the greatest of the virtues in the Christian life. 
Now, he's going to then sidetrack and talk about these two spiritual gifts that were, uh, were, were quite exciting to have some, for someone to have the genuine gift of prophecy or the gift of, of knowledge, which were, these were revelatory gifts in the early church. God was speaking through these people. That would truly be exciting. That would be just, just tremendous. But Paul says that where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, the King James writers wanted to really develop a, a tremendous, uh, beautiful translation in English. And one of the rules that you'll find that English writers or teachers try to tell you is don't overuse certain words. Don't repeat your words. If you use one word in one sentence, use a synonym in the next sentence. But when God uses the same word in two sentences and you translate them with different words in English, you miss the point. And that's what happens here is the the Greek word that translates they will fall and it will vanish away. It's the same word. It's the same form. Everything's the same. But if you don't know the Greek, you'll think that two different words are used. And they're not. It's the same word. Now, there's four things we have to pay attention to if we're going to get it right in understanding these verses. First of all, there's a shift in verbs and voices in verse 8. You have katargeo in those two, prophecy and knowledge will be abolished. I'm going to consistently use that as the translation. Prophecy and knowledge are going to be abolished. But tongues will cease. It's power. It's a different word. So prophecy and knowledge are going to end the same way indicated by the same word. But when you, sh- and they're in the passive, that means it's go- they're going to be acted upon. Something's going to cause them to be abolished. But tongues is going to cease. It's in the middle voice, and it indicates that, that it's going to just sort of die out on its own. That's sort of the sense of the middle voice there. Just going to, it's no longer going to be needed. Paul's going to give the reason in chapter 14 is having to do with announcing judgment on Israel. If that judgment was the destruction of the uh, defeat of the nation, destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, then after A.D. 70, the purpose for the gift no longer existed, so the gift would just no longer function. That makes sense. So we have to pay attention to the shift in verbs and voices in verse 8. Second thing, we have to understand the meaning of this word perfect in verse 10. Uh, teleos. Uh, third, we have to understand that there's a temporal shift that goes on in this passage from the from between now and then. But now this, then that. Now this, and then that. And then we have to realize there's two different illustrations that are used in verses 11 and 12. And what these verses are going to illustrate is the abolishing of knowledge and the abolishing of prophecy. Because right in the middle of those verses, it uses that verb again. It, you just got to connect these words and everything begins to, to clear up. So what we have here in verse 8 is a focus on prophecies will be abolished, tongue, uh, knowledge will be abolished. The focus of this chapter is not on tongues... Because it's just going to die out. But knowledge and prophecy are going to be abolished, and that's what he's told. He doesn't mention tongues again. He doesn't mention power again. But he mentions 
katargeo several times, and he mentions knowledge and prophecy again. Now, there are always people like what we find in, in language studies today, like Dr. D.A. Carson. His IQ is off the charts, and sometimes I think people like that uh, miss obvious things. And this is a typical argument you'll see from people. He says, well, I don't think you want to make very much out of the use of, of pausantai in verse 8 any more than, than one can make much of other stylistic features. See, that's what happens is people today, they minimize the the verbal shifts that occur in Scripture and say, you know, that's just stylistic. God the Holy Spirit didn't mean anything. Don't pay attention to the fact that the word shift or the, or the mood shift. Uh, now, if we believe in inerrancy, and those who believe in the inerrancy and the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture down through the years say that, that even the word endings are inspired by the, by, by the Holy Spirit. So I think it is important. Now, Paul says... Knowledge is going to be abolished. Prophecy is going to be abolished. And then he says in verse 9, we know in part, and he uses that phrase, ek meris. That's another dot to be connected. And we prophesy in part. In other words, knowledge is going to be abolished, and it's incomplete. It's partial. Prophecy is going to be abolished because it's incomplete. It's partial. But and then we have, see that first word, but it's a contrast. In contrast to partial knowledge and or incomplete knowledge and incomplete prophecy, he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial, what's partial? Is tongues partial? No. Knowledge is partial. Prophecy is partial. When the perfect comes, the partial will be abolished. Katargeo again. Okay, see, it's very clear here in the original. Prophecy is, prophecy is going to be abolished, katargeo. Knowledge is going to be abolished, katargeo. Knowledge is partial. Prophecy is partial. When the perfect comes, the partial will be abolished. That's knowledge and prophecy. Now, what's this thing called the perfect? Well, this word teleos or teleon that's translated here is usually translated perfect. Now, perfect is a term that has to do with the quality of something. If it's imperfect, it's flawed, it's not quite what it should be, it's not perfect. Perfect is flawless. That has to do with quality. But when you have a word here like partial or incomplete, is that a quality word or is that a quantity word? That's a quantity word. It's not fully there. It's incomplete. It's not complete. Now, Teleos can either refer to something qualitative or quantitative. Since the context here has to do with something that is partial, it's got to be quantitative. So we can't translate it something flawless. Now, this is a real problem because a lot of people will come along and say, this is talking about something, a stage of perfection in God's plan. Well, the only stage of perfection is God's plan. It's when, in some sense, we're absent from the body and we're face-to-face with the Lord. Now, that's going to occur uh, uh, only at a couple of different times. So let's just review here. First of all, prophecy and knowledge are both partial. Prophecy and knowledge are both abolished, and, but tongues ceases. Prophecy and knowledge are going to be abolished by the arrival of the perfect. And, so, and then we get an illustration that says that maturity, this is when you have the childishness. When I was a child, I thought as a child, and I spoke as a child, and I acted like a child. But when I became an adult, I set aside childish things. 
maturity abolishes, that same word is used there, childishness. So the fact that that verb katargeo is going to be used in that, those illustrations tells us that the, illust- that the illustrations are designed to help us understand how the partial is abolished by the perfect. Now, there are seven interpretations of the perfect that you'll hear. I'm just going to put the left side up there, uh, and that's either the completed canon of Scripture, that is the completed revelation of the New Testament, or... A, or the, mature, the church reaches maturity. Now, what people mean when they talk about that is it's mature. What makes it mature is really the completion of the canon, and they would mark the maturity of the church at the time of the death of the last apostle. So those views are probably are pretty much saying the same thing. They're just looking at it from different sides of the same coin. On the other side, you have people who say that, well, perfection is death when we're face-to-face with the Lord. Isn't that what this... What this verse uh, then talks about is that um, that we are um, uh, when I uh, let me see verse twelve. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. It's got to be face to face with Jesus, doesn't it? So this must be when when, when things are perfect, or the rapture. Same thing happens. You get raptured, and you get an resurrection body and you're face to face with the Lord. Second coming, if you don't believe in the rapture, second coming, you get face to face with the Lord. The eternal state or scholars use the term eschaton. The problem what we run into here is that is that in terms of the perfect, if the perfect arrives when we're face to face with God, we're going to have a real problem when we come to the last verse. Let me just cover these two, and then we'll get to the last verse. Paul gives two illustrations here. He said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, thought as a child, reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I what? I katargeoed childish things. I abolished childish things. So he's relating prophecy and knowledge to immaturity and childishness, and they're abolished by maturity. And then in verse 12, he says, and this is really fun. I love this verse because it shows the importance of knowing the original language. It's not a sign of arrogance to point that out. It's just that if, if you went, if you wanted to take a graduate course on French literature and your professor had never read French literature in the original French, you wouldn't want to take the course. So why is it? that we spend, so many people spend Sundays listening to somebody expound on the biblical text and they've never read it in the original. It often means something different than it does in some of these translations. For now we see in a mirror dimly. See, what do you, what, what do you see when you get up in the morning and you go in the bathroom and you look in the mirror? What do you see? You see yourself. You don't see your dog or your cat. You see yourself. So it's a reflection. Now we see ourselves in a mirror dimly, but then, see, notice the now and the then. When's the now and when's the then? Now we see ourselves in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, there's that word again, I know myself in part. See, there's knowledge and it's ekmerus, it's in part. See, he's connecting that dot back to verse 8 and 9. Now I know myself in part, but then I shall know myself fully, 
just as I also have been fully known. Well, on the surface, it would be real easy to say, well, that must be when we're face-to-face with the Lord, because only when we're face-to-face with the Lord is there going to be full you know, self-awareness. Well, that's possible, but that doesn't really fit the context. See, that first now is this word arti. Now, there's two words in Greek for now. There's arti and there's nuni. Many times they're interchangeable, but when they're both used in the same context, arti means like right now as opposed to nuni, which is a broader now, like right now as opposed to now this week. Okay, so Paul says for now, that is right now, we have this thing going on a mirror dimly. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word there is enigma. You look at yourself and you're an enigma looking in that polished piece of brass. It wasn't glass, it was brass. It didn't give a great reflection. It's a partial reflection. So you really don't see yourself very well. Uh, This word is used in an interesting passage in the Old Testament where God is talking to Moses about as a prophet, he says, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. That's how God spoke to every prophet except for who? Moses. He says, Not so with my, with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Another way of saying mouth to mouth is face to face. And I speak to him not in dark sayings. There's that word enigma again. So here we have the same concept of face-to-face and enigma from an Old Testament passage that relates to a prophet. Now remember verse 11 said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I knew as, learned as a child. It's focused on knowledge. Here the focus is on prophecy. And the illustrate the language comes out of a very well-known passage talking about prophets in the Old Testament. And so what God is, what we have in verse 11 is an illustration of how the knowledge, partial knowledge is abolished, childishness going to maturity, and here we have the same thing going on with, uh, in relation to prophecy. Now we see in a mirror dimly, enigmatically, like a riddle, But then, face to face, we still have to figure out when the then is. Now I know myself in part. See, he went from prophecy, now he's talking about knowledge. Now I know myself in part, but then I shall know myself fully, just as I also have been fully known. So let's try to explain this in a little bit of an expanded translation. For now, that is right now in this pre-canon period, before we have the complete, all the information given, we don't have it all. We only have part of the New Testament. It's a partial mirror. For now, we see in a mirror enigmatically, we have an incomplete canon. But then, that is when the canon is complete and we have the sufficient revelation of God, then I shall know fully just as I also have been known. So in terms of a timeline, he's making a distinction between now in the period of the apostolic age when we don't have a complete New Testament, and the then is when we do have a complete New Testament. Now, say, well, Robbie, that that sounds like you're stretching it. Well, let me tie a bow on this. Verse 13, he says, but now, but he doesn't use arty. He uses nuni. It's a broader now. Remember, I found that in a footnote in a dictionary one time. 
That's why you have to read footnotes when you read things. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, here you have the prominent view today. I mean, almost everybody will tell you this. I even had a seminary professor say, now I don't want anybody to write a paper on tongues and take the uh, canon view. That Nobody believes that anymore. So you have this view that says that that the perfect represents that which is flawless. It's, it's when we're face-to-face with Jesus. Okay. That means that the now is this time on earth, and the then is when we're face-to-face with Jesus. Right? You all got that. That's really important to understand that. So the now has to do with now we have knowledge and prophecy and all the everything continues. Right? But here he says... Faith, hope, and love abide. Oh, in that view, they have to take that abiding as something eternal because obviously knowledge and prophecy would cease when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. And that would mean that knowledge and prophecy are for this time on the earth, faith, hope, and love are when we're face-to-face with the Lord. Ah, but we have a little problem because... In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. You see, when we're on this earth, we walk by faith and not by sight. But when you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, you're walking by sight and not by faith anymore. So faith ends when you die. After that, it's sight. Face-to-face with the Lord. It's direct sight. So faith is not going to continue when you get to heaven. Romans 8.24, Paul says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? When you see it, you don't need to hope anymore. That means that hope ends and faith ends when we leave this life and go face to face with the Lord. So that just blows that other view just completely apart. The only thing you're left with is that prophecy and knowledge were active during the time of the apostolic period. Now we see through their partial. Now we have partial knowledge, partial partial prophecy, but then face-to-face. Face-to-face with what? Face-to-face with the complete Word of God. The mirror is going to be fully built. As James calls it a, 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 the perfect mirror, uh, how shall a man who not looks at himself in the mirror uh, and the perfect law of God in James chapter 1, uh, verses 27, 28, somewhere in there. Uh, for in hope, uh, and then, so we have this. And when that's complete, then we're going to have faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love will continue throughout our life. And then when we die, we leave faith and hope behind, but there's still going to be love because God is love. And love continues. That's why the greatest of these is love. So what have we said? It's been a problem down through the 2,000 years of the church age that people look for something experiential to see, to prove that they're somehow more spiritual than other people, and that's just arrogance. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not any of these other things. Spiritual life has to do with our walk with the Lord. And people get distracted in Satan's world by putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. 
The second thing that we see is that tongues was never given for these secondary purposes that people always think. It wasn't given for evangelism. It wasn't given for prophecy. It wasn't given for revelation. It was given as a sign of judgment on Israel. And when Israel was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, then there was no longer a need for that gift, and it didn't function anymore. It was a, they were legitimate languages that were miraculously given by God the Holy Spirit. And so that's what's going on on the temple steps, is there is this announcement by what they did and the fact that they were saying it in these languages that judgment was coming. And if you misunderstand that, then it really leads to some really odd views on Scripture, which unfortunately happen. So next time, now that we have covered all of that, we'll get into Peter's explanation when we come back next Tuesday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you have a plan and a purpose. And when, you, when things happen in history, you've announced ahead of time what they're going to be, why they're going to happen, and that the clue is to study your word and to be faithful in your word. And that it's not because we're any smarter than anybody else, but it's because uh, your Holy Spirit has revealed these things to so many different teachers and pastors down through the ages that the truth resonates within our souls. We understand these things. And, Father, we just pray that uh, rather than letting uh, knowledge be a source of arrogance, that uh, we would still have humility, recognizing that that um, the greatest of all is love. And we are to... Uh, continue to love one another because this is the mark of the church and love excludes every form of arrogance. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.